Welcome to Agent to Agent Remarks. Really just wanted to start a conversation. The podcast dedicated to real estate ethics and best practices. Here to talk to you about the market. Hosted by broker Jeffrey Lavelle of The Brokerage, a real estate firm. We have some great interviews on this podcast. Hear expert guests related to the real estate industry discuss actionable advice, tips, and tricks. Now, here's Jeffrey Lavelle. All right, everybody. Jeff LaBelle here, broker of the Brokerage Real Estate Firm. As you heard from my uh, illustrious introduction, I've got a dear friend with me today, Jeremy Cooper of Cooper Coons Law Firm. Uh, Jeremy, how are you? Doing well. Thank you. Thanks thank, for having me. Thank you for coming. I've uh, been trying to get you on the podcast for a while. You're very busy. You are much in demand. Your wife keeps you extremely busy traveling. I mean, it's, I'm very jealous. That's right. It's tough to keep up with the travel schedule. You know, my wife, obviously, if she's not on vacation, she's planning the next one. So, so lovely, lovely lady. You know, she keeps me on my toes. And she is a, she is a spicy gal. Spicy gal. And she's not here to defend herself so we can this talk about part. her freely. Right? I, I'm not going to send her the link for the podcast. <laughs> sure. She doesn't need to know about this. <laughs> All I can say is, uh, man to man, the C's candy wrappers, you've got to throw them away once you've got one. Yeah. I found out that that's how she keeps track of you. Yeah, I know. I, I got to be better about that because she, she does give me a hard time about my diet. So that's good advice. Nobody can see you right now, but you're in great shape. I mean, uh, you know, from one man to another, uh, you know, you're 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 doing fine. Don't well, worry. Thank you. Appreciate so that. You're an attorney, and your practice uh, is focused on trust, wills, estates, family planning, real estate uh, entities, and things like that. Correct. And you've been an attorney for a year and a half now. Going on to <laughs> yeah. If we, if we... <laughs> how long have you been doing this? So this actually will be year number. 14, I think, if I'm doing my math right, which, yeah, that sounds about right. I started during law school with a law firm not too far from here. I think we're in Laughlin now. I think it took about an hour and a half to drive out here. That's because you're a Summerlinite. You're a Summerlinian or whatever the hell they're called. That's something like that. That's the uh, least offensive way to put it. So I've been doing this for a while and I have a a background as a CPA as well as you may remember. I do. I did a stint with PricewaterhouseCoopers out in the Bay Area, out of school, got licensed to be a CPA out there, came back to Vegas to go to law school, started working in estate planning about one year into law school and mm-hmm. haven't really looked back. And you and I actually met at the firm that you were at and you, trans- you opened your own practice and I didn't meet with the attorney on the on the door. I met yeah. with you as an associate and when you opened your own practice, I was more than happy to move with you because you're the guy I dealt with. Yeah, I think you were getting ready to graduate from high school at the time, <laughs> if I recall. At least Something you like looked that. like that. But I can say that because a lot of clients thought the same of me at the time. Right. So anyway, yeah. We you were know, both younger. Yeah, that, those were that was many years ago, back with the uh, firm that shall not be named. No, just, just kidding. That uh, was a great firm, <laughs> yes. great place for yes. me to get my training and, and move on and start uh, Cooper Coons, which about... We're going on, I think, 12 years now. And I remember the opening and all that stuff. And uh, you guys have done a wonderful job. Obviously, you know, being a real estate broker, uh, we wear many hats and it's it's always a challenge, I would say, to make sure that you're not putting a hat on that you're not licensed to have. Right. And so I want to talk to you about, uh, well, well, a few things. One, in my practice, there's a lot of misunderstandings about who needs a trust and mm-hmm. what is a trust and 
Um, more, uh, my grandfather, for example, had a fairly modest estate in California and I knew at the time he needed a trust and I begged and begged and begged because he wanted to make, make, he wanted to make me his executor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Grandpa, please get a trust. I don't need a trust for it. I'm not rich. So there's this misunderstanding and I want to come back to that, but, um, you know, there's, there's trusts, there's LLCs, there are escorts that are filing or LLCs filing escorts. So there's all these different entities that exist in holding real estate. Right. And then they kind of get together sometimes on their own LLCs and trusts. And so let's, let's jump into, uh, well, you tell me, what do you want to start with? Yeah. You've kind of hit on a few points there. So let me go back to the first one, at least the first one I caught and address that where there is this common misconception out there that estate planning is for the wealthy and uber rich which isn't true. There definitely is a lot of planning on a more sophisticated level that can be done for wealthy individuals. But honestly, you know, what I used to tell people is if you fall into any one of these categories, then then you probably need to consider getting a trust. And those categories are, or at least here in Nevada, in our state, if, if you have children um, who are minor age children, if you have real estate, um, and if you might die someday. So, if you meet any of those categories, I think you definitely need to consider putting a trust in place. And and the reason is, is because whether you're rich or not, you may be subject to probate. And probate, as you may know, is a, a very long, strenuous and expensive legal process that you have to go through when someone dies and they have assets in their name that need to be transferred to their loved ones. You can avoid that entirely um, by having a trust in place if you set it up correctly and fund it properly. And that would behoove nearly everyone who falls into one of those categories here in, in this state. It may not be the case in every state. Some probates and processes in other states are a little more simple and not quite as complex and expensive as they are here in Nevada. But Nevada has a very, um, like I said, just taxing, if you will, probate process. It is. So I want to, I want to just put a, a little pin for one second and, and just remind our listeners that the, the legal advice that you're giving is not for them. You're not their attorney. You're right. to give general information about uh, the trust wills and estates. And of course, everybody's tax and legal situation is different and, and specific. And of course, they should consult a competent professional in the practice of real estate, trust wills and estates, uh, family planning, estate planning. Uh, have I covered you sufficiently, you think? Good enough. Yeah, that, that works for me. Um, I, I do that myself. Yeah. Because I'll say things throughout the the podcast that I think people could probably construe as advice. And I yeah. try to make sure they understand I'm not the broker. Yeah. No, this is all just general conversation between two guys talking about... Two friends stuff. Real estate. Right. So, Yeah. <laughs> Don't take it to the bank. Come see me if you have more specific questions about your particular situation. So we're going to provide all your contact information. So when you're listening to this um, at the end of the podcast, I'll make sure you have all Jeremy's information. So if you want to reach out to him and uh, consult with him on your specific needs and how he could help you, we'll we'll make sure that's available. So probate, I want to go back to that. I had, I mentioned my grandpa and he didn't have a trust. He died with a will. Right. And so um, uh, I had to go through a California probate. Even worse than Nevada. Horrendous. Mm-hmm. It took the better part of a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention I had five siblings. My, my, my mom and her siblings or half siblings in some cases that I had to, uh, I don't want to say appease, but 
deal with basically right. for this whole year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's court. I mean, the attorney got a tremendous amount of money. And and don't get me wrong. I mean, if people get paid for the service that they render, but it was avoidable, right? I mean, yeah, the, it, entirely. Yeah. And that's why having or considering doing a trust doesn't take much. Most people, their main asset is their home. Right. And that can be a very valuable asset. And that in and of itself can rocket you into the most advanced and cumbersome um, form of probate, which would be a general administration. And so it doesn't really take much. People think, oh, I've got a home. I've maybe got a bank account. What's the big deal? Cars. Yeah. But that can end up um, tying you up to eight months to a year in probate, assuming everything goes smoothly. It could cost thousands of dollars in legal fees and, and court costs. And so there's no point in, in going through that if you don't have to. And the way you, the best way, in my opinion, to avoid that is to have a trust in place. There are other, are other ways to avoid it, but I don't recommend those options. And so I won't get into them. But another common misconception you brought up is having a will is sufficient right. to keep you out of probate. Right, right, right. That is not the case. A, a will in and of itself will not keep you out of probate. You really need a trust. And like I said, there are some other options. I don't want to make it sound like having a trust is your only option, but I feel like that is your best option. Generally speaking, I mean, not again, this is general, general information for most people, right? The trust is going to be the thing that, that really fits all the, the bells. So, Correct. um, you know, one interesting thing to me was, uh, you know, Nevada's community property state. Yeah. I said that very quickly. Nevada is a community property state. Mm-hmm. And so my misconception, and this was cured a few years ago, uh, as a surprise to me, I had a young, uh, a young lady, I had an older lady who was married. She and her husband owned a home. Right. The husband was on title. There was no trust. And uh, when he passed away, she had to probate her own home. Right. Yeah. That you, you think that, you know, you your husband dies, you're his wife or vice versa, and your spouse dies, we'll say, and they, you assume you'd inherit it, that there wouldn't be anything at all. Right. You would think it would be a lot easier, but it's not. Unfortunately, when one spouse dies, if assets are titled just in that spouse's name, they will have to be probated in order to transfer over to the surviving spouse. And that's kind of what I tell people is that, you know, when you're dealing with um, the state, I mean, you're basically by not having a trust and having a probate only, you're giving quite a bit of the decision making to people that you don't know. Okay. So yeah, if, if there's a will, you know, the will will still give directions about what's supposed to be done, assuming the will is valid. If there's no will, our state laws tell us who's supposed to get what, but that may not have been representative of what the decedent actually wanted. And so you do open up this doorway to allowing third parties to come into play and maybe have a say in what happens, even though the law spills it out. I think it's just more likely that you have problems going that route as opposed to having your affairs in order and documenting your wishes clearly. And so for me, you know, I, I think of, um, the, the trust as just being, and no offense to anybody that doesn't have a trust, but it, it kind of feels to me like the responsible thing to do and, and kind of the way that adults have to operate today. It may have been different 25 or 30 years ago, and maybe it wasn't, but to me, it feels like if you're not setting these things up today, you're setting yourself up or your, your, your family and friends and whoever it is you're leaving behind for a headache. 
I agree. Yeah, it, it's really what it really comes down to is you can save them a lot of time, effort, and money by having a trust in place. And especially if you have younger children and you don't have a trust in place and assets end up being transferred to them if they're under the age of 18, those things are going to get tied up in a guardianship type uh, proceeding or setting, which complicates a lot of lives at that point. It complicates the kids' lives. It complicates the guardians of the children. Um, where if, whereas if you have a trust in place and you have assets held in trust for minor age children, then a trustee, the person who would be in charge of the trust, oversees those assets for the benefit of your kids. The court doesn't have to get involved, makes it much easier to administer the trust in favor of the children. And the kids don't necessarily get everything right at age 18 like they would without a trust being in place. So, okay, so... I let's just say for an example, I have a primary residence. I have a home I live in. Uh, I have two kids and a dog, um, two cars, uh, a spouse, and um, you know, let's just say I am in a a dangerous job. Let's say I'm a police officer. You know, I I run into this a lot with my law enforcement, firefighter clients, people who are in uh, you know what I would consider a dangerous job. Um, what does a trust package contain? So a package would include the trust itself, obviously a revocable living trust and the other primary documents that we prepare whenever we do a trust package would include a will. So even when you do a trust, you still do a will. The will still has um, some purpose, even with the trust in place. Maybe there are assets that haven't been transferred into the trust when you pass away, in which case the will tells us what to do with those assets. It tells us whether you want to be buried or cremated. If you have minor aged children, that tells us who you want to be guardians over the children as well. So still an important document, um, just doesn't serve the exact same purpose it would without a trust. We do powers of attorney for financial matters, which is the document that comes into play if someone needs to make financial decisions for you, if you're unable to make them for yourselves. Uh, we do a healthcare power of attorney, which is similar to a financial matters power of attorney, except that it applies to healthcare decisions. And it tells us what you would want done if you were incapacitated and receiving some form of life sustaining or life prolonging treatment or artificial nutrition or hydration. So some people refer to that as maybe a living will or a healthcare directive. Uh, that's an important document for pretty much everyone to have, regardless of whether you do a trust or not. Those are the main documents that we would do. There are a couple of other ancillary um, documents that support the, these documents I've referred to, but probably not worth talking about in detail right now. And then um, the uh, the process. So I remember uh, when I was 12 and I set my trust up with you, um, <laughs> the... Uh, uh, the process was, was in my opinion, very simple. It, it's a, a list of questions that you ask. It's a um, well-scripted, I guess I would say, because you want to make sure, going back a second, it's funny because people feel like scripts are a bad thing, especially in real estate. Um, you get these agents that that are trained initially to use a script. And they're like, oh, the script isn't me. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, a pilot gets in a plane. He doesn't go, woohoo, let's go, guys. He sits down or she sits down. They go through a checklist of things that they need to do. Same thing with what you're doing with the trust. You're sitting down and you're saying, okay, 
uh, name, uh, property address. And you go through this very methodical list of things that you need to collect from somebody. So how does a trust consultation, I'm come to you, I said, okay, I want to do this. What is the process? How long does it take? And, and how much pain is involved? We try to make the process as easy as possible for clients to where we don't require that they bring anything in when they initially meet with us. We'll talk to a lot of prospective clients and they'll say, well, what do I need to bring in? They're, they're thinking they're going to have to bring in a box of documents and social security numbers and all kinds of information. And then it's not that complicated, especially on a very introductory standard estate planning type level. We have them come in, they sit down with us. We ask them some questions, almost exactly like you've explained. We get an idea of who they are, what the family dynamic is like, who they trust, who they don't trust, who they want to leave assets to. And then we start to get more specific and kind of just whittle away at how to draft the trust document. That's not to say we start with a blank slate and draft a trust word for word from square one. You know, we, we use a template document that we like um, to use with all of our clients. And then we go in and customize certain sections of it that are more relevant to the clients themselves. Right. Because anything, uh, you know, anything in real estate, if you're, if you're a real estate agent, you know that the escrow company has their boilerplate stuff. You have things that are, I say, not client specific. They're the boilerplate text that in, that, that is relative to statute or uh, any sort of, uh, you know, just kind of standard language that needs to be included. So um, you're not reinventing the wheel. It's, you know, our real estate documents are very similar to that in, 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 in sales, right? You know, you go in, you fill in the blank areas that are relevant to this specific situation. You make your addenda or whatever you need to do in order to, you know, fine tune the specific details of this transaction. And the same thing is true uh, for the trust. So, uh, you know, I've got uh, my primary residence, maybe uh, an investment home. We're going to go into investments in a minute, but um, I've got the primary residence. I've got my, my kids as uh, my, my spouse. And, uh, I've got my trust established. Do you guys take care of all of the, you know, cause clearly it's not, I'm not going to be the owner in air quotes. You guys can't see me. I'm doing air quotes right now. I'm not the owner of the property anymore. The trust is actually the owner of the property. Correct. Yeah. And, and let me just go back real quick. I don't think I've entirely answered your question about the process. And so that initial meeting takes about an hour on average. And then we start drafting documents, which is usually at two to four week process. We have the clients come back in, they sit down with us, we review the documents, make sure they look good. In most cases, get them signed at that point and then help transferring assets into the trust, which is, I think, maybe a good segue to your, your question you just asked now, where in order for a trust to really work and help us stay out of probate, assets need to be moved out of your name as an individual because when you die, if the asset is in your name, it goes through probate in most cases, um, and transfer the title into the name of the trust. And so, yes, the trust does become the owner, which may scare people a little bit at first and hearing this concept of, oh, I'm not the owner of my assets anymore. And, and the bottom line is, is you really are. It's just you take the asset out of maybe one pocket and put it in another, and you still own the asset through your trust as the trustee of the trust and as the beneficiary of the trust, it's still yours. You still access it whenever you want, whether it's your home, whether it's a bank account, whether it's an investment account, nothing's really meaningfully going to change once you've moved those assets into the trust. And that is a misconception. I, I think I hear a lot uh, that people are afraid that it's business as usual. I mean, there's no real change 
from, uh, you know, Jeff owning the property to Jeff's trust owning the property. It really is just a matter of how that relates to in my incapacitation or my death. I mean, so, so, um, you say we've met with you, it's an hour appointment, big deal. Uh, we come back a couple of weeks later to review the documents, sign the documents. Your office takes care of transferring the title and S the, the title, uh, over to the trust. I get this very nice binder. I get a zip drive or thumb drive, not zip drives anymore, it's the thumb drive with all my documents on it as well. And then it's easy for me to go to the bank with my uh, four or five page certificate of trust, which is really just a synopsis of the trust itself. I put my bank account in that, my life insurance in that. I make it the, so it really, the process for people is simple. You walk them through it. You're there as a resource the whole time. And I think the, the main thing that I would just encourage people to, to think about is, um, I, I've watched, I've been on the, the receiving end many times of clients going through the death of a family member. And it's already hard enough because rare, I shouldn't say rarely, but so often death is unexpected. And so to, to have your family thrust into this, it, it, it really, if you've made the trust, you prepare the trust, and then you've reviewed the trust with the people that I guess your successor trustee, it's important, they know what's going on. Um, but also the, the kids, I mean, if you've got adult kids, I think, and maybe you disagree, but I think that the kids, even though they're adults now, I think they should be made aware of kind of what the wishes are because, you know, dad dies, and leave mom behind or mom dies, leaves dad behind. You want everybody to kind of know and not be shocked by what the plan was. Right. Especially if it's something other than all of the kids sharing equally in the inheritance. And I, I take the approach that, you know, every family is different. I don't know family dynamics is any more than what the client tells me. And so I, I don't presume to go in and tell these people how they should conduct their affairs with their kids um, just from a personal relationship standpoint. And if they think it's going to be helpful to tell their kids how their estate plan is set up, then I support that if they feel if they're more private. Some families are very private. They don't want their kids to know anything about basically anything that has to do with their assets or just net worth. I'm okay with that as well. You do tell your family anything. It's just important that if you make changes down the road, because it's almost inevitable that people will change things at some point, that you also let them know about the changes so they're not stuck thinking one thing is going to happen when there's a change made and then you pass away and then something else is happening. It doesn't mean it won't work from a legal standpoint. It just may cause some confusion, some hurt feelings. And, and that's why you just want to be careful about how much you share with family and at what stage in your life you maybe share it with them. And that's why you're the attorney uh, that does trust wills and estates, and I am the real estate broker. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know that it's a universal um, uh, opinion that you take that approach. That's how I like to do it. And it is, it is family, you know, it's different for every family. It just kind of depends on the circumstances. So let's just say now I have the benefit of an investment property. And I think there's a big misconception out there about uh, who owns investment property. It's been very much at the forefront of the pandemic because we've, we've had this impression, I think there's been a misimpression that investors are rich people, right? So there's, there's this impression that everybody who owns an investment property is somehow just rolling in their money like Scrooge McDuck, uh, you know, counting all their gold coins in their bank vault. And the reality of it is, in many cases, it was the primary residence that they first bought. 
it they were able to buy a second primary residence, move out of the old one, make that an investment, move into the new primary residence. And so it's this leapfrog effect of, of developing and acquiring assets. And yes, it does take some, uh, you know, income to do that. Uh, it takes some sacrifice to, uh, save up for the next down payment and not have to sell the, uh, current home to buy the next home. So, and, and it just is a strategy. I think for a lot of people, they take that low, let's just say FHA, three and a half percent down payment. They live in the house for a minimum of two years, which is what's required by FHA. And then uh, they're able to save up another FHA down payment for the next home and so on and so forth. And they acquire this little portfolio of real estate, which is great. And and uh, now they've got a tenant in you know property A, they're living in property B. Um, they move out of property B and buy property C. So now they have tenants in A and B. What happens if tenant A slips and falls and down the stairs and, uh, you know, they find out it's the the negligence of the homeowner, not the insurance policy to cover it. And they've got a tenant in A, they've got a tenant in B, they own home C, and they're all in that person's individual name. That sounds like a problem that may be curable by a what? So, yeah, good question. Um so it's, assuming they can find a personal injury attorney in this town, I don't know that we have too many of them <laughs> to take on a case like that. But it just let's just uh, go out there and assume that they they can find someone. Then you're going to be sued um, individually, right? And that means to the extent they get a judgment against you, they will be going after your personal assets now. In a lot of cases, it may not get to the point where they have a judgment against you. That means you've gone through a trial, the verdict was against you, and so now you're um, on the hook for whatever damages there are. There's insurance in place. You may have an umbrella policy, some kind of other you know renter type insurance to protect you. And the the attorneys may just go after the policies, and they may say, "We're good. Just we're going to get a check from." your insurance companies and and go our separate ways. But to the extent that that's not sufficient or the policies don't provide coverage and there is a judgment against you, then, and and that's against you personally, then that means all of your personal assets could be exposed to that judgment. Um, and, And so that includes each of your rental properties. It includes personal bank accounts, investment accounts as well in, in most cases. So the way to, try and protect yourself from a judgment like that is to use different types of asset protection vehicles. And a very common asset protection vehicle is a limited liability company or an LLC. So do you want me to keep going? Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I mean, for me that that's kind of where I want to segue in and, and then if you don't also uh, mind going into the series for the people that, like I said, in this example, they have property A, they have property B and they live in primary residence C yeah, I want to know two things. Uh, what does the series provide? What's the benefit of the series? And does it uh, do anything for their primary residence? So let's start with just the standard LLC, which is, if you haven't gathered the act or the initials for limited liability company. So the LLC is what you can use to protect yourself personally from any liability that happens within the LLC itself. So it's a company, you register it with the Nevada Secretary of State. It's like you've basically set up a business in in some ways. And so you would transfer your rental properties into that limited liability company. 
And as long as you treat it like it's a business, meaning you set up a bank account for the LLC, you have the rental income deposited into the bank account for the LLC. You don't use that rental income for personal expenses. You only use it for expenses relating to the rental properties. And doesn't mean you can't use it personally. You just have to distribute it out of the LLC bank account and put it into your personal account before you use it um, for personal expenses. And so if you do that properly and someone slips and falls and they end up suing you, then your personal assets are protected from that exposure from the lawsuit. However, the assets within the LLC are all exposed to that lawsuit. And so having all three properties in that LLC exposes them to um, that potential liability. So you're thinking, well, why not just put each property in its own LLC to protect them from the liabilities and, and debts of each individual right, property? Exactly, yeah. So that's where the series LLC comes into play, which is a, a different version of an LLC that we have here in Nevada that allows you to actually create one individual LLC with the Nevada Secretary of State. And then through it, you can create what we refer to as individual series entities or series LLCs that um, function as though they're, they're LLCs in and of themselves, but they're not registered with the Secretary of State. Because you could just set up three different LLCs with the Secretary of State, but that gets a little expensive from an ongoing administrative standpoint. A lot of clients don't really want to do that. They'd rather just have one LLC and then have these individual series that they can put each uh, piece of property or each rental property into and thereby insulate them from one another and any liabilities that may be caused in that sense. So, so that's how you would protect yourself personally from any liability occurring on the rental properties or within the LLC itself. But what, uh, what also gets sometimes missed in the conversation about LLCs is that you, you also get direct, or excuse me, protection from personal liability from the standpoint that if you, Jeff Lavelle, are driving around town, I've seen how you drive, you get into a car accident. This is all hearsay. Yeah. (laughs) Unless you've seen it. So then you get into a car accident um, you, and you get sued again, assuming someone can find a personal injury attorney to take that case, then all you're getting sued as an individual, right? Then all of your, again, your personal assets could be at risk. Your LLC will be an asset that you own as, as well as the properties you indirectly own them through the LLC. And so the concern is as well, can they just take the LLC from me or can they take the property still from me? Because now this is a personal liability that I'm on the hook for again, assuming they have a judgment against you after insurance has all been exhausted and everything. Well, Nevada passed a law, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago that uh, is, it says basically that when you're sued or someone has a judgment against you and they're going after an LLC that you own, the sole legal remedy available to them is to get a charging order. A charging order is is, is a legal remedy that only allows someone to intercept profit distributions made from the LLC back to you personally, meaning they can't actually take the LLC from you. They can't force you to liquidate the LLC and, and pay them off. They can't um, take the properties or the assets within an LLC either. So you, you also get this protection going the other direction, if you will, from personal liability. So you can protect your properties um, from car accidents, anything that might happen. And, you know, if you get into a fight with someone and they sue you, which 
with that kind of a beard, I'm sure you get into fights all the time. I'm a brawler. I'm I'm known. They they go they they call me Jeff Lavelle the Bruiser. That's what I've heard. I wasn't going to say that on air, but no, it's it's on the charging documents on the record. <laughs> so, um, I I so I, I'm super. Uh, first of all, I think that as a real estate broker, we encourage our agents to be the source of information. I should let me let me rephrase that. We encourage our agents to be the source of the source, not the source itself. And so I'm not going to sit there if somebody says to me, Jeff, what's the best school in Las Vegas? What's the best this in Las Vegas? I'll tell them the best restaurants all day long, um, as you can tell. But I'm not going to tell them what the best schools are. I'm not going to tell them if it's a quote unquote safe neighborhood. I'm not going to tell them uh, anything that I'm going to be on the hook for being the, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, The guarantor, right? I'm just going to say to them, look, Here's a website that'll show you what the schools are graded for. Here's a, a website that'll show you the crime statistics in the neighborhood. And so uh, I don't want to advise my clients that they should have an LLC, that they should have a trust, that they need to do this for this, 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 and this. What I do want to say to them though is, hey, based on your situation and looking at your, uh, you know, your, your makeup, we'll say your family situation or whatever it is. I think you might benefit from talking to a trust attorney and here's why. And what I, and, and so for the agents listening to this, my spiel, if you will, at the closing table. So we're, we've bought the house or we're buying the house. We're at the escrow company. They're signing all this paperwork, all this title insurance and all this other stuff. Uh, that's my opportunity. After the, the notary is gone, she's making the copies. We have the hard conversation. And it's not a conversation that I enjoy having with my clients because what I'm telling them is, Hey, when you die uh, and you leave your kids in this world alone, uh, and it sounds morbid, but the yeah, the reality of it is you are going to leave all of these untied uh, loose ends sitting out there in the, the breeze for anything to happen to. And so I encourage them at the point of our signing and they get the same response. And if they're listening to this, they know who they are. I know, I know. We've been talking about it. We have to do it. We know we have to get it done. Um, but I'm surprised at how many police officers I deal with that don't have trust wills and estates. And, you know, thankfully, um, you know, I, I think that Nevada has been very lucky um, with a fairly low number of law enforcement related deaths. But the reality of it is uh, our law enforcement officers are out there every day is, is just driving in the city is a, is a danger with me out there. Um, but just driving in the city is a danger. So, um, I, I see these people who are, are in higher risk jobs and I just think, gosh, you know, you're not set up for something fairly simple. And, and it's, as you described it, a fairly painless process. Now, the other thing I want to mention is not only when I do, uh, the introduction to a trust, but I also discuss, uh, the title insurance. So for the agents listening to this again, you need to ensure that your client, if they have the intent, they may not have done it yet. They may not have established their trust as of now uh, at the time of your signing, but you need to ensure that if they have the expectation or the intent of, of preparing or having a trust prepared, that your title policy allows for the transfer from the individual name to the trust and that that policy remains intact. Some escrow companies, there's an additional charge for that. Some escrow companies offer the endorsement gratis. There's no extra charge. It's just part of the policy that they charge you for anyway. But you as an agent need to be aware of that so that if you get into a situation 
where they um, uh, go to do this later on, they don't lose that very expensive title policy that is there to protect them against the previous owners, liens, judgments, and encumbrances. So it's a great opportunity for you to recap the transaction, recap next steps, go over the importance of a trust. And if you're working with an investor, I mean, I have a couple of investors that, you know, we do property management as well. I have a couple of investors that are completely exposed. They have eight, 10 properties that are all in their individual owner, individual names. And I bug them on a monthly basis to talk with a, with a trust attorney, uh, with an attorney that can prepare an LLC for them, a series in that, in that case. Um, I'm not telling them that that's what they need, but I'm telling them that they need to get it done because it creates a tremendous exposure to them over eight properties. I mean, that's eight opportunities for someone to get injured, for someone to get hurt and attach the other seven properties that they, uh, they own. Right. No, it's, it's good advice. Um, I, I would recommend it in most cases as well. A lot of people hear the, uh, you know, I need to put an LLC in place. Does that mean I have to file tax returns? Is that going to just really complicate my life? And it does change things some, but in, in most cases, we set them up to where they're treated as disregarded entities for tax purposes. And so as long as you are the sole owner or along with your spouse, you guys are the sole owners of an LLC, you do not have to file a tax return for it. You can just report everything on your personal income tax return the same way you are currently doing it or would be doing it if you had a rental property in place. So that shouldn't necessarily be the reason not to do it because you're worried about the complication of filing taxes. That's not a barrier to getting an LLC done. Um, You do need to set up the bank account. Like I said, you do need to make sure certain things are being handled in a way to where you're respecting this separate legal entity status of the LLC slash business itself. But once you have that all in place, it's it's going to be like you said earlier, business as usual. So uh, I I want to give people a takeaway, you know, with this um, uh, process. The 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 trust itself is a, an avoidance of probate. It is a fairly simple process to get through. I know it comes with a homestead. I know that's one of the documents you were. Uh, avoiding talking about because it's kind of a, a unusual circumstance, but it does have the homestead, which, you know, when you buy a house, you get 75 letters in the mail asking if you want to establish a homestead. So it does that for you. Um, and it and it offers a number of other benefits. One of the things that I think uh, that we didn't touch on, but I want to touch on really briefly is perpetuity. And so I have my trust, my uh, trust is set up so that my children don't receive a distribution from our trust if my wife and I passed away, they don't receive anything until they're 33, I believe, 35, something like that, um, because we want them to be intelligent enough to do something good with the money. Um, and then also not addicted to drugs, alcohol, or being in a dangerous situation uh, socially, et cetera. So we've put some provisions in place at your, you know, with, with consultation with you um, to protect for those potential issues later on. But the other thing is uh, when we die, uh, so when, let me, let me back up a little bit. I'm confusing my thoughts. I'd see a lot of people, mom, dad passed away. Let's just say they had three properties, two condos and a house. There was a rush to distribute those properties from the trust that mom and dad had set up into the individual names of the beneficiaries of the children. And there's this, so instead of having them in the trust still, when mom and dad pass on, the kids think, oh, the first thing I should do is get it in my name. And, and what is your thought on that? So I, I'm not a big fan of that, especially with younger kids and 
even with older children, I think you really miss an opportunity to provide some pretty solid asset protection for your children going forward. Because when someone who set up a trust dies, the standard revocable trust, that is, it becomes irrevocable at their death. And if you draft it properly, we can include what are called spendthrift provisions, which is more or less another way of saying asset protection. And so any assets that remain in the trust, if again, if drafted properly, can be protected from the kids and whatever they might, whatever might be happening in their lives, divorces, lawsuits, potentially even bankruptcies, things of that nature. Whereas if the assets are distributed out to the children and held in their individual names, they don't have that protection. Once they come out of the trust, they belong to the children, just like any other asset. If they go through any of those problems I just mentioned, those assets they inherit are going to be exposed to those problems. And so just one quick point of clarification too, like in in your case with your kids, when you say they're not getting a distribution until they're 30 or 35, whatever the age might be, the person overseeing the trust can still use it to help them pay for school and for health and just general education or excuse me, maintenance and support. So it's not like the assets are locked up and they don't get anything until they're 35. It's just that they don't have unilateral control over their inheritance and still until they reach this age or the different ages at which you've said you're okay with them taking control. So that's, um, that's an, I think just, I want to just clarify that, I guess. And that's a good point because, you know, if your kids are in this uh, vulnerable age, we'll say of, of early 20s, late teens, um, you know, high school's coming up and, and who's going to pay for them to go to college? Who's going to pay for them to room and board? You know, you, you have planned for these things during your lifetime and, uh, you know, the untimeliness of, of, uh, of somebody's death, it's, it's never convenient. And so to have something in place where the successor trustee, so, uh, the person who's taken over for us in our death, the successor trustee can respond appropriately to the needs of that child that, that you've left behind to uh, provide for them with reasonable things. I mean, if they needed a, you know, if they're going to NYU, they're not going to be staying, uh, in an apartment overlooking central park, but you may need to get them, uh, into something that is, you know, habitable, right? You want them to be someplace safe and clean without, uh, the giant, uh, New York rats in it. But so I want to just recap for my layman's. I want to make sure as a layman, I'm understanding uh, what the, um, the, the asset protection you're talking about does. So I have a trust, I pass away. Uh, well, my, my, my spouse and I pass away. So we're, we've left our kids, uh, at age 22 and 25. And, uh, we don't believe that's necessarily in, at this point, our, when we prepared our trust, we didn't think 25 was really a good age for a kid to get a hold of, we'll say a million dollars. Um, and so, uh, we've said that at, at the age of 30, uh, 35, they'll get, uh, a- access to the house, which has been rented out. Um, they'll get access to the, uh, investment properties, which have been rented out and all that investment money was going into the trust, et cetera. But, um, uh, if, if they were to take those properties out of the trust, as opposed to maintaining them in the trust as they had been for the last 10 years, they lose that bulletproof, I guess you could say. So, so at, thir- at 30, Johnny gets married. And at 35, Johnny and his wife are having some rocky times. He gets control of this property. He puts it in his personal name. And now all of a sudden she wants a divorce. By not having it in the trust, he opens himself up to those 
assets as part of this marital uh, dispute now. And if he had left it in the trust, it sounds to me like he might have had some protection from the wife claiming acts, uh, claiming the, the 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 community property of his parents' estate. Am I correct on that? Mostly, yeah. Property. Community property versus separate property is a little unique. Maybe not the best example to use there because inherit assets, that's still your separate property, even if you're married um, or if you bring it into the marriage, it stays your separate property. But what ends up happening is things tend to get commingled, even if they were inherited. And it does open the door to um, potential exposure where the spouse could potentially claim a piece of that. Whereas if it stays in the trust, then you don't have that issue at all. So like a, a lawsuit might be a little bit of a, a better example to where yeah, if the assets come out of the trust, then, and you are sued and there is a judgment. So the Johnny the gets in a car accident right. yeah. and he hits somebody while he's changing his uh, radio or his thermostat. And now they're suing him right. is a more realistic approach of how this protects him. Yeah, right. Correct. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, Jeremy. Right. That's what I always say when I'm talking about you. <laughs> uh, so if you've heard, I'm having some audio technical difficulties, but Jeremy is very hard to get a hold of because he's in such high demand. Uh, so I apologize for my voice being in various stages of echoey and and in good condition here, but uh, we'll get it fixed for the next episode. I want to thank Jeremy Cooper, Esquire uh, of Cooper Coons Law Firm uh, for coming in today. I think it's been a pretty productive conversation. I don't care what you think, Jeremy, but uh, I think it's been a pretty productive <laughs> conversation. Uh, I am going to send this to Serena now since you've told me I'm wrong on tw- two occasions. But I'm no, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm glad that we had a chance to dispel some of my misconceptions because I think I'm fairly adept at this. I think I've been around this stuff long oh, yeah. enough that if I'm getting something wrong, I think it's important to know where I'm wrong so that I can... Uh, provide examples to people for, my, you know, when I'm encouraging them to go talk to you uh, and talk to an attorney in this field, that I'm not giving examples that are not appropriate for their specific situation. And again, it's not legal advice that I'm giving them, but it's examples of how consulting with an attorney that's competent in this practice, because you don't, I mean, one more thing I want to point out, and, and, and please don't think ill of me for this. There are attorneys in town. You don't have to agree with me because I've seen it myself. There are attorneys in town that I don't want to say prey upon uh, the elderly in our community. We have one of the fastest growing retirement communities in Nevada. But I see a lot of wills on letterhead from the attorney's office for someone with a considerable estate they have a house, they have, uh, presumably have uh, decent uh, uh, bank accounts, maybe two homes. And these attorneys are creating wills where, in my opinion, and again, as a lay person, they would have benefited from having a trust. And it seems to me that this is a, uh, hey, mom and dad passed away. Uh, here's the will. Here's the name of the attorney that prepared the will. Let's call them. So then they are getting the probate, which now they're getting paid, presumably getting paid more for right. than if they had prepared a trust for somebody. And so I look at that and I, I, I there's a couple of them in town that do this, but um, I, I think I want to just impress one last time on people that it, it is almost guaranteed to be less expensive 
uh, for the estate to do the trust, less hassle, less grief, less impediments, less obstacles to have a trust in place than to have somebody pass on without the trust. Am I right on that? You are. Yeah, that's entirely what my experience has been. So I, I would say, yeah, you're spot on. So if you if you want to prepare the people that you love for, or maybe you don't love them, but you don't want to leave your stuff at the ASPCA. Uh, but if you want to prepare the people that you leave behind for the least stress, the least extra steps to endure in your passing, please, whether you're listening here in Nevada and you can go see Jeremy, um, you do, uh, you can do trust outside of the state of Nevada. Am I right or wrong? We, in the states where we're licensed. licensed. So, yeah. what states are so that's California, uh, Texas, uh, New York, Massachusetts, and Utah. We're affiliated with a firm there that we can work through. Perfect. So if you're in those states, you're listening to this, you can call Jeremy at uh, 702-998-1500, 702-998-1500. Uh, it's also Jeremy at coopercoons.com, Jeremy at coopercoons.com. And you can consult with him uh, and you meet with Jeremy. One of the nice things is you actually meet with the attorney whose name's on the door. Um, he won't be the one that's filling in the blanks on your paperwork because he has a very qualified staff that does that for you. But it is very comforting to know that you have somebody who uh, I can tell you I trust implicitly. I know that Jeremy is a stand-up person or wouldn't have on my podcast. Um, and I know that he is very, very competent. Of course, you also can Thank contact you. the State Bar of Nevada. You can go through their uh, attorney referral network. Um, I certainly want you to uh, do your due diligence. Uh, you may find somebody who you uh, jive with better and is equally as competent as Jeremy, although I doubt that will be the case. Um, but I do want to thank you again for coming on today. Um, I think that uh, the takeaway I, I have from this is that I am advising people correctly about consulting with an attorney when they have uh, property, the real property that uh, could be subject to probate at some point. Because I think one of the key things you said is if you are going to die one day, a trust is probably the the right thing for you. And I think most of us are going to die. That's, I mean, that's my that experience as well. Still? Yeah. As far as I can tell, that's what's happened. It's still around 100%, continue to, right? If not very close. To very it. close to it. Okay. Right. Well, although some of our politicians don't seem to die. Oh, I will, Not to get into politics, but they just <laughs> seem to live forever. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to touch that one. Yeah, I know. You're very, you're very politically correct. But um, thank you again. I've, I've thanked you six times. Thank you to your office for letting you be out of the office for this long duration. Uh, and if you have any questions, of course, you're welcome to contact Jeremy again, 702-998-1500, Jeremy at coopercoons.com. And uh, thank you again for being here. Thank you, Jeff. We There's no harm in, in reaching out to an attorney, especially if they offer complimentary consultations for the initial uh, meeting, which we do. So feel free to call us, email me. I'm, I'm happy to try and help however I can. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And let's do it again. Sounds good. And thank you for listening. Uh, Jeremy, you're going to think about another thing that we can talk about together. Maybe uh, the travel planning. We'll get Serena we that. here. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll talk to restaurants. Yeah, restaurants. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back soon with another informative episode.